I didn't even attend Travis's funeral because that was my way of dealing with him dying. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point, right? you know, you're going to a funeral. I could quite never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top of something. She did say, you've changed. The soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Today's conversation is with Adrian Talbot. Adrian came on the podcast last year in a bonus episode to talk about his experiences with the Invictus Games. At the 2014 London Games, Adrian won two gold medals and was an ambassador for the 2018 Sydney Games. It was a great conversation about the rehabilitation he found through sport and its camaraderie and an insight into Adrian's emotional journey after his time in uniform. After listening to this, I encourage you all to go and look up that episode. But today, Adrian tells the rest of his story to Angus Horden, including his time with the British Royal Marine Commandos, his deployment to Afghanistan, and life after. Adrian, welcome back to Life on the Line. Thank you for having me, Angus. Adrian, let's start with your childhood. Where were you brought up? I was brought up uh, in Sydney, so born in Camden and moved to uh, Sydney at the age of five. Then went through schooling here and university and then I went on the Great Aussie Walkabout. Do you have any military history in your family? I didn't know it at the time um, when I joined, which is quite interesting. That kind of generation of stoic individuals that often don't, don't share. And um, I didn't know my, my mother's father, so he passed away when she was very young. I've since found out that he was a uh, bomb tech in World War II, so he was um, was living with a few few issues as a result of the Great War. On my, my father's side, he was actually a, a munitions tester, so he didn't go to the Second World War, but obviously on my, my mum's side, my grandfather did. Did you have any particular exposure to the military at a young age, like school cadets or other things? Uh, funnily enough, no. I'd always been incredibly intrigued by the military, so much so that I was in... Um, primary school when the first Gulf War started. And I remember staying, um, I was sick one day when the the war had begun out there. And I remember I had it on television. And recently, um, probably this is quite embarrassing, but I was uh, playing with um, toy soldiers. And then when I started thinking about how old I was, I thought, "Um, that's probably, um, probably not the best. But and now I'm telling you on a, you know, live podcast, which is fantastic. However, it was always entrenched in me. No cadets, but just in the back of my mind. There's nothing wrong to talk about with toy soldiers. I've got them as well. I mean, when we grew up with our computers, that's what boys did. Yeah. Um, I just hung on to mine. Yes, those miniatures are great. And you can't get them now. Yeah. What did you go on to do after school? After school, so I, I was quite a, a sporty 
uh, Australian like like many of us. So my career started moving towards this, my chosen sport, which was tennis. So I got qualifications in business coaching, sports studies, which is my degree. And then I kind of tailored some of my um, educational qualifications around a job that I was offered uh, working with young up and coming um, junior athletes. So tennis players that were wanting to make it on the, the international scene. So I worked with tennis New South Wales for a while. And that was around when uh, September 11 happened. And that evening kind of changed my life in a sense, seeing those Twin Towers come down and then the realisation that I'd applied for ADFA on two occasions when I was going through my schooling, but never went through with it because I was quite committed to to trying to become a, a professional tennis player. That kind of as I say, changed my way of thinking. And I felt that by going to work, you know, what would I be doing to um, change what was going on out there in the the bigger world? You end up joining the military, but it's not the Australian one. Yes. um, I still get in trouble for this, actually. Saying that, though, it was an amazing experience. I couldn't have ever met a better bunch of men. It changed my perceptions on a lot of things. You know, what I thought was um, people with, you know, strong wills and characters and people that could overcome adversity. I had a new benchmark when I got introduced to the Royal Marine Commandos. So this is in 2005. What inspired that decision? I was, uh, I'd gone walkabout. Um, so after after working in the industry and obviously what I just spoke about previously, it, it had kind of planted a seed in my mind that I needed to be doing more to bring about some change. So every day on my work uh, way to work, when I when I was over in the UK, I went past a, a recruiting office and it seemed to be uh, calling to me. I eventually went in, I started talking to various people people within the careers office. So they had the the tri-service representing in that office. And on my second visit, I was sat down talking to a um, an army sergeant and there was a Royal Marine that was sat in the corner and um, he wasn't busy. He'd just finished with someone that was wanting to join the Royal Marines. And he was quite rude, actually. He got up and came over and interrupted our conversation and said, oh, you don't want to join the army. Come and have a chat to me. And obviously he was a lot bigger than both myself and the army sergeant. So I obliged. So you joined the Royal Marine Commandos. What was training like? Training was intense. You know, I I always look back on training with incredibly fond memories. I went through training um, one and a half times. So I got to week 15 and then felt that perhaps this lifestyle wasn't for me. So I approached my training team and just said, look, I'm not really enjoying this. And they turned around to me and said, well, you're not meant to enjoy it, which was pretty obvious at the time. But um, I just said, look, no, I just feel that this path probably isn't the path for me. So what did that commando say to you in that interview room initially that made you go this way? The commando that sort of convinced me to join, he basically was telling me about the the physical challenge and the, the mental challenge of training. And that's why I was quite intrigued by it. And when I got to week 15 the first time, I just felt that perhaps it wasn't for me. You know, the military wasn't the right environment. But um, boy, once, once I got home and started doing what I was doing before and that realisation really slapped me across the face. You know, I was on holiday with my family up in um, Kingscliff and we had this tremendous storm and I remember um, I was actually running on the beach so I was still physically training incredibly hard and then I just sort of had that realisation, you know, what, what am I actually training for right now? And it was for me to go back and, and finish. The problem was I had to, once I went back, I called the chief petty officer that had recruited me into the commandos and he um, turned around and said, look, they'll take you back, but you've got to start from week one, day one. So yeah, that probably wasn't the most intelligent thing, leaving just before the, the test exercise, which would have meant that I could have come back into training at week 15, but hindsight. Yeah, well, good on you for going back. 
You were posted to two Commando Royal Marines who were down at Plymouth. When was your first deployment? Finished training and then was given an opportunity to go down to um, Fort 2 Commando in Plymouth and um, pretty much immediately, like we were gearing up to go to Norway to do our Arctic uh, warfare training and quite a number of our, our company of men had, had already gone out to Norway and then they were brought back and they basically said one day, swap your Arctic gear and we're going to Afghanistan. Funnily enough, at the time there wasn't um, wasn't enough desert kit for us so some of us still had our um our dpm webbing which was pretty interesting seeing blokes you know sort of half dressed and half in dpm so the cam wasn't really working but we went out and bought our own sort of our own gear just so we you know didn't stick out like sore thumbs we're in march 2006 and this is a particularly hairy period in afghanistan i recall where were you posted to we were sent down to uh southern helmand were the first commando company to go down there. There were other other elements already embedded that came and met with us when we were on the ground. They'd been there for quite a while and they were just giving us some good insight into um, what had been happening for them. I spoke to one bloke, he hadn't been home for two years, which was um, just absolutely mind-blowing. And they, they were in a small, a small group of men just doing what they do out there on the ground. So it was just an incredibly interesting um, yet deadly place, you know, I remember sometimes waking up in the morning just looking and just going like sunrise and but you know then on the ground it's like the wild wild west everyone's carrying weapons you don't know who friend or foe is there's that kind of that intensity of you know a war zone but then it's sometimes just this you know beautiful backdrop of snow-capped mountains but with 40 degree heat in a desert it's really it's quite obscure actually your memory of your first day in Afghanistan, how was that? So we were flying in, as you do. We just got the call over the Tannoy system in the aircraft to um, put on our webbing helmets and body armour. The process then is quite quick. They sort of come out of the sky and then just dive to try and avoid rocket attacks. So that was quite interesting. And then on the ground, it's um, straight away, you're kind of, you've come from being in a um a purely safe environment where you know you've got no threat of people trying to rocket attack you or or shoot at you and then people are telling you that you're now in a war zone so that was um an interesting change and we flew into um kandahar so fairly safe i say fairly safe you know they they'd often get hit by mortars and things but um we spent a couple of hours there and then they started flying us in chinooks down into um bastion which wasn't actually a it wasn't a base at the time it was just sort of some um sandbags and various equipment that had just been dropped. So what was life like on base then? We had to establish ourselves quite quickly. There was a, an American FOB there, but it was a small FOB and we had 150 men on the ground. We weren't all able to go inside that FOB and outside of the FOB obviously it was unprotected. So yeah, just setting up our perimeters and putting out patrols. The objectives changed a lot once we were on the ground there. Like initially we were told that we were going there to eradicate Poppy that changed quite quickly because uh, the people that had started that process were, were all um, slaughtered essentially. So um, they decided that we would just provide overwatch for the engineers that were building Bastion and then push out our area of operations around Bastion to, um, to see what was going on. Do you recall your first patrol? It was actually a couple of days that we went out for. That kind of uncertainty every night, you know, coming across sometimes Bedouin tribes, sometimes people you don't know if they have sort of those elements, but obviously we don't engage because of our rules of engagement unless we're engaged. So it was just uh, a lot of the time wrecking these various individuals. But it's such, as I was saying before, it's such a... Um, interesting country and in that you know people just knocking about doing going about their days like 
carry AK-47s. And then trying to establish that who's trying to kill you is often hard because a lot of them dress the same as the people that are the nasties, if you know what I mean. We started doing a few stop and searches as well for people that we suspected. And the Terps, the Terps were good. You know, some of them weren't so good. Some were sort of working for those nasty elements. So there was that again. You just never know who's good and who's bad. So there's a real parallel, for example, here with Vietnam, where we didn't know friend or foe either. Yeah. When I look back over the history and um, what the diggers went through out there, there are definite similarities. Obviously, the the, the environment is particularly different and also it's it's their home home soil you know so a lot of the times like where you would think they're dug in and there's there's a lot of tunnel systems you know they've been doing this for a long time and they you've got various levels of of individuals that are your you know your general farmers then you've got your your people that are growing crops for your drug lords then you've got your warlords and then you've got your your taliban and then you've got various levels within the taliban it's um it's quite complex and obviously a, a political system but um without having a true understanding and i think as as the years rolled by uh we got better at understanding that but we probably didn't have a very good understanding in those early days so it was very hard to establish as i was saying so the um, Afghan National Army were very close to the the American FOB that we were we were in. They'd established relationships with the Americans, but what I could understand, the, the relationships weren't that weren't that strong. So we started working with them, and then from that came um, an element of uh, training the ANA, which is where they were going through that process of handing back the country to the the Afghan National Army. But at the at that time, they were quite um, they were in a bit of disarray. You know, there were people that were kind of outcasts from their own societies and so there, there was a lot of desertion in those early days but as time rolled on and I know this from from mates that went on multiple deployments out there they became part of their environment on the ground and you know during those those subsequent tours they they were often you know leading the battles and things are there any particular patrols that are memorable to you there's one in particular again where you'd like you'd be out on the ground and then all of a sudden, you know, it'd be your turn to go up on sentry. And this one particular area we were in, you know, some stuff had happened there previously. So then I had to sort of trudge up the top of this hilltop where we had one of our Wimics, which are sort of soft skin vehicles with a, a bit of a Kevlar plate underneath and um, some Kevlar plating on the side. But uh, the top gun there was um, quite open. There wasn't any Kevlar plating around it. It was just... Um, the 0.5 with like an open cage essentially it's just like a bit of a death cage really as tours went on the the kit got better and the, the vehicles got more and more enclosed but at that time we were kind of very exposed and um, obviously the lads were getting their heads down so sleeping down at the bottom of the valley and there i was on top of the hill just in charge of protecting these men and i just nothing happened that night but um i just remember like it was a it was pretty a pretty scary situation it's all on you yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of people relying on you to, um, you know, not get killed. It still sticks in my mind and um, I just feel that, yeah, like it It was pretty scary, even though nothing nothing actually happened that night. Adrian, war has its hardships, but it also has its lighter moments. Are there any particular funny experiences you can recall? Every day is a funny day when you're working with Royal Marine Commandos. Even when things are bad, they make jokes. Like it's the way we get through those incredibly tough times, even though sometimes the jokes are incredibly inappropriate. But um, it's what gets us through essentially. And when I suppose it's just when you when you reflect and when you're probably not in the best headspace that things become darker. But at the time, I can understand why the jokes were made and why some of our 
our leaders were were talking about things that had occurred in such a lighthearted manner and making making funnies because it, it essentially it changed the mood and made us be more positive about the situation. Unfortunately, there was that incident with the signaller. That young man was an attached element. I think about this because the commandos are quite tight-knit. You know, we, we go through that incredibly long training, 32 weeks of infantry training. We come out, we go to our units. The units are tough places. You know, initially when you were a, what they describe a, a sprog, you know, that sprog routine lasts sometimes 12 months, sometimes up to six months, depending on depending on the character and the nature of the individual. But it's just kind of a, a sink or swim mentality. And you're around individuals that are uh, seasoned veterans. You know, they've done multiple deployments to um, some pretty nasty places in the world. So you have to develop a pretty thick skin pretty quickly. This young man was kind of, um, when I look back on it, quite isolated from that environment. He was in a, obviously in a HQ element, but without rank. So, you know, he was, well, he had, he was an NCO, but given the environment he was in, he was around all the, all the officers. So he was probably quite isolated. And he was uh, talking on the sat phone in front of me the night before he took his own life. And he was having trouble getting through to whoever he was trying to chat to, I'm not sure. And in the end, he just gave up because he was, he was getting a little bit of pressure from the, the line that was forming. Um, and again, the blokes just do it because that's the environment you win. But he probably felt a bit a bit alone, which is quite sad. And then he, he went into our, I think this was a bit of a statement as well, he went into our toilets the next day and, uh, yeah, blew his brains out and we were, we were responsible for the, uh, the clean-up. Are there any other particular memories, highs or lows, from the trip that you'd like to share with us? In the big scheme of things and what, what my mates had uh, gone through on previous tours, I think we were very lucky and the gentleman that took his own life was the the only individual from 150 guys that went out. You know, everyone came back aside from him. So I'm lucky to, to be here. My mates are lucky to be here. That's a great tour, considering the dangers you were in. I'm incredibly thankful. Yeah, there was a, a lot of other people um, that weren't so lucky around, um, but they were coalition forces that unfortunately lost their lives. But, yeah, look, you know, I've got some incredibly fond memories. You know, it's just that. It's always that unknowing, you know, like you sat there on, on Sentry. When I got the opportunities, I'd write home to my um, my sweetheart that I'm happily married to now. And we've got three beautiful daughters, you know, and she'd write to me. And whenever I'd, I'd love getting back to base after the patrols because I would, the lads started um, calling me welfare though. So they'd often give me their, their sat phone cards for those that didn't have um, girlfriends. So it's always that, that family and that community of supporting each other get through those those hard times. You're deployed in March. When do you actually get back home to the UK, though? I think it was a, a roughly four-month tour. So, again, relatively short compared to some of the other ones. We met some um, Americans that had been out there for 12 months, which was just really phenomenal. And then those other gents who were British, they'd been out there for two years. So I came home and then we, um, I ended up getting married quite quickly. You know, it's still that kind of gaining permission in the military. You've got to go and see your... Um, your boss and ask for permission to get married, which is interesting. He told me not to do it, which is quite funny. The rest is kind of a bit of a blur. I am, um, fell pregnant on our honeymoon, so we had our, our first beautiful daughter shortly after, Eliza. And then my career came to an end in 2009 after doing various things within the military. I transferred out of a fighting company because I couldn't stay there long term, even though that's every Royal Marine's dream is to stay within a fighting company. And I uh, ended up going into um, police troop. So some would say I sold my soul in um, 
especially the lads from fighting companies. But they were a, an excellent bunch of bootnecks, so Royal Marines, that I got to work with just in a different space. Over your course of time with the commandos, did you lose any mates? Lost a couple of mates. Lost the mate that I actually went through training with. After a while, like it, this probably sounds really bad, but I'd stopped watching the news because I didn't want to. I didn't want to know. Like I, this is probably where I started um, retreating a little bit into myself in terms of my own mental health. I'd finished um, my police training and came back to my unit and went up and saw the police office manager. And uh, he basically, you know, gave me a task and said, I'll just go down and help this uh, other guy. His name was Topsy. Um, I'd gone through training with uh, police training with Topsy, been in for about 12 years in the commandos. And uh, the job was to go through repack boxes, which are our big boxes that get sent when we go on deployments. We put all our kit in them and put our names, our name or our service number on the side of the box so they can be identified. And they've got all of our sort of either military kit, but most of the military kit's on, on us when we go. So it's all our other stuff that we take overseas. So there was these boxes that we had to go through. Topsy had the list, the will from this young man. And uh, I, so I went down and went, you know, what are we doing? He goes, oh, we're just going through the will to see if we can find these items. They weren't on his person when he died. And um, I was like, oh, okay. So then I started looking at the list. And then I looked at the P0 number, which is his service number on the side of the box. And I was like, oh, that's um, really close to my number. And then obviously I looked at the name and I was like, oh, I knew him and, you know, we went through training and there I was kind of going through his um, his personal kit and looking at photos, you know, from training, you know, and he was um, he was blown up. It was actually, it was quite public that, that death in that um, uh, Ross Kemp was over there at the time doing a feature on the Royal Marine Commandos and Travis was in a shell scrape and I didn't look into this until years after. I didn't even attend Travis's funeral because that was my way of dealing with him dying. And it obviously I wasn't dealing with it, but it was just and sort of... And you regret that now? Yeah, it was, it was a protection mechanism. And it, it's such a small community of men. The, the uh, colonel that was um, looking after the family actually moved out here to Australia because he was helping the Australians with their amphib capabilities. And I met him when I got back here and he was actually the guy that had also arranged to donate uh, paddle boards to the company the rehab company that I was attached to so that's where I'd met him but I I didn't know that he'd been part of Travis's uh, funeral so he was handling the funeral arrangements he was talking to mum late at night and early hours of the morning and really trying to support the family through that hardship so when I reconnected with with Jim and we started chatting he started telling me about um this event and I was like oh my goodness and then I told him about my side of the event and so it was just sort of putting those pieces of the puzzle together yeah but I do regret it I I regret not not being there but it got to the point where you know you're going to funerals quite often for bootnecks that were dying out in Afghan it's hard to see your mates not coming back and having the things that you have. When did you eventually get discharged from the British military and under what circumstances? So 2012 I was finally medically discharged that process sort of started in 2009 where, you know, I, I attended a med board after I got diagnosed with osteoarthritis in initially one hip and then I was diagnosed with it in my other hip shortly after. And then they started going about treatment to try and salvage my hip joints. At the time, some of the, the treatments were quite new and they didn't really know what the long-term outcomes were going to be. And so it was just surgery after surgery. They finally took me out of my day job and put me into a, a full-time rehabilitation company with other people with significant injuries and battle casualties from Afghanistan. 
I still had a real positive outlook on where my career was going when I first got diagnosed. I was like, well, I'll be back. I'll be back in soon and I'll be able to deploy with my, you know, with my troop. And there was one, one medical officer that uh, was sat on my board. Two of them were quite optimistic and this individual had, had experiences with what my diagnosis was and what the long-term sort of prognosis was for someone wanting to remain as a commando. And he was quite, um, he was quite abrupt and short with me and um, he was actually on my board uh, a couple of years later and um, yeah, that was kind of, that was hard, that kind of realisation myself that didn't matter what I did physically, I was actually probably not doing myself any favours in the long term by trying to get back to that kind of physicality so in the end I asked to um to go and they were obviously supportive of me asking to be medically discharged. So Adrian one tour was enough? Yeah look I got nicknamed one tour Talbot which is uh you know what you do in the military with that banter I would have loved to have deployed more but um yeah circumstances just were never in my favor for that and to be honest it's not a place I mean you, you kind of once you get into that that mentality and obviously wanting to be there to support your mates, then you want to keep going back. But I suppose that's part of the addiction of, of that environment and the addiction of the training that you go through that gears you up to want to do that sort of thing. And to be honest, it's I still look back and go, oh, I miss that. But then when I really break it down and look at all the different components from a from a logical perspective and what you know what could possibly happen and how it could impact my family it's probably not the most sensible thing for me to do but then at the same time there was something that attracted me to that career it had always been in me and it always um it kept resurfacing and yeah so I do miss it but then at the same time if I look at both sides I'd have to say that my family are more important than the job. So your relationship with your wife suddenly rapidly changed. You come back from war, you get married, and then you go into this spiral and thank God she's there and you really find out the sort of woman you've married then. I consider myself one of the lucky ones. Em stuck by me, you know, from meeting this beautiful lady to having her become my full-time carer while she was bringing up our girls. Because at, at, at that point in time, I was kind of detached from most realities like I was I was on you know some incredibly strong opioid medications which were given to me on a daily basis and then grappling with that kind of recovery from surgery and the pain and uh, there she was just holding the fort I see it from the other side as well I see where you know those relationships break down because it would sometimes seem like an, an untenable situation but yeah she stuck by me so an amazing person if like you know sometimes it should be the the wives you know, and the families that are, that are getting medals pinned on their chests. You leave England and you come to Australia and, and in many ways that's good for you and your family to leave that behind. Yeah, I miss my friends over there. I, I developed some amazing bonds with these individuals and even when things are so bad that you, you wouldn't think you could get through, they pick you up, they help you through those hard times. Well, they put things into perspective. In Civvy Street, you think you've got a problem. You go back out into the field and you're on picket by yourself. That's a, that's an issue. That's a problem. It definitely helped me from that perspective, like where I first thought, you know, I was in a stressful situation. And now, given those, you know, those those experiences and those years of service, I can definitely sometimes look at things and go, actually, well, it could always be worse than this. I came home, but at that time I was pretty, I was pretty unwell psychologically. I hadn't dealt with, with anything from a, a mental health perspective because at that time I still felt that everyone else had the problem. Adrian was fine. It was everyone else around me that hadn't adjusted back to reality. So that was an interesting perspective. 
So now you start to become involved with veterans and various causes. Can you tell us about Soldier On and the Kokoda Track? That was an amazing experience, an RSL Kokoda trek that we went out there. So there was a number of um, corporates that were supporting the the trek. There was representatives from the ADF, CEOs, you know, a lot of corporate investment had gone in there to get the people over there, which was wonderful. But there was, it was over 90 strong, the, our trek. So probably most importantly, there was the family of the fallen from Afghanistan. And there was individuals that had actually served with the gentlemen that had lost their lives out in Afghan. So you had the family, the young men, and then you had all these other people that were sort of supporting them through the trek. But every day we'd hear a story from a family of the fallen about, you know, their son and what he'd done in his life. And, and every day you're connecting with, with different people that, you know, had these amazing stories to tell. And it wasn't until the last day of the trek up on Isarava, we were all gathered round. There was mist on the mountains, one of the bloodiest battles between the Japanese and the Australians before it. And there we were with these young, young Australian veterans. And some of them decided to share their story. And one in particular was a combat engineer. And uh, it was the first time he'd publicly shared his story. So we were all listening and there wasn't a dry eye on this, this mountaintop because it was an incredibly powerful and emotionally evoking story and then the family of this fallen man that this gentleman was talking about were there also so and this was the first time that they'd heard this account so it was phenomenal and then the medic that was also there when this young man passed away was also there so he got up and he spoke about it from his perspective and sort of was saying that he wished that he could swap places so it was like I said before like there wasn't a dry eye and that was kind of a realization after hearing this combat engineer's story that things that had happened during my career and you know the loss of life and the behaviors post those things that occurred what I'd also done was similar to what this young man had done in terms of trying to not address the issues i.e when I had my injury I was given open access to opioid medications there is a strong drinking culture in the military so I used drink to not address these issues so I was always trying to keep them down as opposed to letting them resurface and when sometimes they resurfaced and occasionally that was when you know you'd had too much alcohol and so that was always bubbling over in the background so Isarava and the Kokoda Trek and these these amazing people telling their stories kind of brought it to a head for me. And now you're the manager at Homes for Heroes with RSL Life Care. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, Angus. So that journey from Kokoda essentially led me to start working with, with veterans in a productive way. So at the time, I was still quite unwell. I'd realised that, though. That realisation, that self-realisation where you sat there going, right, I can't control my emotions. What's wrong with me? I thought I'd lost the plot. I went and got, got help. I reached out to the supports that are out there. Initially, I called VVCS, the counselling service. They put me in touch with some good mental health experts. And for me, it was a relatively quick process. And I'm not saying by any means that every day is going to be a great day. That's just a reality that's untenable for many. Um, some days I have my bad days. But for the most part, I'm you know a stable, functioning member of society. But I now have an insight that can potentially help other veterans and their families because my wife and I have gone through it and we've seen other people that can get through it. So there is hope. You know, the program again is is hope and it's a light at the end of the tunnel for people that have been grappling with their own personal circumstances. Sometimes for these individuals everything kind of 
every system that they've they've tried to use to support them has has failed them from their perspective so it's a slow journey back to recovery but we're in a, an amazing position where we can give them a, a roof so it's a it's a housing first program with wraparound services so we start by giving someone shelter and some food and then we start helping them with qualified community support workers to try and refer them to people that they need to be able to piece their lives back together. So for every individual, that's different. Sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's legal. Almost 100% of the times it's physical and psychological. We help them get those supports, but it's, um, it's intensive. Like, you know, working with people that have been sleeping rough, you know, homelessness comes with its own set of issues. But that's the the key is to get them back into the community in some way. And for again, for every individual, it's different. For some, it might be them returning to work. But for some, it might be them participating in, you know, community activities and rejoining a different family that's not the military family they have, but being a productive member of society in, in some way. When you reflect back on your military service, is there anything more that you wanted to share with us today? Angus, I think... I just want to um, thank everyone. I want to thank all those that serve in the military. I want to extend that thanks to uh, their families because often they're the young son heroes that are helping these individuals when, when things do become tough, when they return from war. And I'd also like to say that there is hope out there. So you can overcome these challenges. So when you think that the only option is that, that horrible option of um, taking your own life, reach out, get the help, get the support, call a mate if you can, if not, get that support from the the professionals because it is an incredibly hard journey to come back from, but you can come back from it. We salute you for your service, Adrian, and the great work that you're still doing with our veterans in the community today. Thank you for coming on our show today. Thank you, Angus. It's an absolute pleasure and thank you for having me. Look up Home for Heroes online. You can find them on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook too, at Life on the Line Podcast, which is also our Instagram handle. Our Twitter handle is at LOTLpod, and our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. If you enjoyed Angus's conversation with Adrian, please share the podcast on your social media. You can also jump over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thank you. We read everyone and we really do appreciate them. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>